Hey, everybody. It is Friday, November 17th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, officially now, the congressional seat representing your district will be open next cycle with George Santos saying he's not seeking re-election. Do you have any news to share with us today? <laughs> I don't, but I've been trying to scroll on Twitter to see funny-ish reactions to this. Of course, Santos finally announcing that he's not going to run for re-election. Richie Torres, who is a congressman from the Bronx. A, a Democratic congressman who has <laughs> really let George have it for the past year. And he is considered a friend of Israel and a friend of the Jewish people. So he had... He wrote, I will be the sole surviving Jewish gay Latino congressman from New York. (laughs) (laughs) A reminder that George Santos made up a lot of aspects of his biography. Yes, including. (laughs) Sort of being, he's like, I'm not Jewish, I'm Jew-ish. After he was called out on that. Anyway, we'll have more on the big ethics committee report that came out on him and, and what precipitated Santos saying. Peace out. All right, let's get to some news here. The latest from the Middle East, where Israel continues to search Gaza's biggest hospital for traces of Hamas. Meanwhile, Mosh spoke to two people whose family is being held in Gaza. Plus, we certainly didn't expect this headline in 2023. Some Gen Zers are taking a second or maybe a first look at the attacks on September 11th and saying that they are sympathetic to Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of the attacks. Jill, we got six weeks left of 2023 and uh, TikTok ain't done yet. We'll explain why this is a thing now. Meanwhile, Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, Diddy, uh, accused of rape and years of abuse. We'll tell you that story. Plus, the person who attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband found guilty. As we mentioned above, Congressman George Santos saying that he will not seek re-election. So what finally broke the camel's back? Stay tuned for how much campaign money he spent on Botox, Jill. (laughs) And if it feels like you can buy absolutely everything on Amazon, add cars to the list. From cars to feet, walking has apparently plummeted in America. And it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend, what we are watching, reading, and eating. Can't wait, Jill. Let's get through the hard stuff, and then we'll get you to the fun stuff. Okay, let's start with the Middle East. Israeli troops for a second day on Thursday searched Al-Shifa Hospital in the north for traces of Hamas. They displayed what they said were a tunnel entrance near a hospital building and weapons found in a truck inside the compound. The Israeli military is still in search of the central Hamas command center that Israel has said is concealed beneath the complex. They argue that Hamas had a several weeks heads up to help cover their tracks. Israel has been under intense pressure to bolster its longstanding claims that Gaza's hospitals, Al-Shifa in particular, serve as Hamas hideouts. It comes as President Biden called the Hamas use of the hospital a war crime on Wednesday. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu telling CBS Israel had, quote, strong indications that some of the hostages were being held at Al-Shifa Hospital, citing it as one of the reasons that Israel's military entered the hospital. However, he said if they were there, meaning the hostages, they were taken out. It is now believed that they have moved south. 
Netanyahu telling CBS that Israel has intelligence about the hostages, but adding that, quote, the less I say about it, the better. And it comes as the body of a 65-year-old Israeli hostage, Judith Weiss, was found on Wednesday near the Al-Shifa hospital. The IDF says the body was recovered after Israeli forces searched the area. Weapons were found in the building where her body was found. The IDF believes the kidnappers escaped before the soldiers arrived. Her husband was also considered missing for many days following the attack on October 7th until his body was eventually identified. Okay, Moshe, so you spent part of the day on Thursday with family members of a couple of the Israelis who were kidnapped. What can you tell us? Jill, uh, some really emotional and powerful stories. Keep in mind, these family members haven't heard anything about their loved ones now for 40 plus days. I spoke with Effie Yahalomi. She's actually an Israeli who lives in Portland, Oregon. Her brother, Ohad, and his son, her 12-year-old nephew, Eitan, were kidnapped. Uh, She told us a remarkable story of the family, including how uh, the entire family was kidnapped separately. In fact, her sister-in-law their 10-year-old daughter and the 20-month-old daughter were put on one motorcycle, um, brought pretty near the Gaza border. That's when a firefight broke out with the Israelis. The sister-in-law, the 10-year-old, and then the mom carrying the 20-month-old were able to escape. Uh, They were able to make it back to their home only to then realize that her husband, uh, the father, and the 12-year-old were kidnapped and taken to Gaza. I also heard uh, from a man, Rotem Cooper, whose 84-year-old father has been held for 41 days. And notably, his mother, uh, Nurit Cooper, 79, was one of the four hostages who's already been released by Hamas. So uh, he described what she's told him so far about the experience. We're going to be putting together a special episode, but I want to play a clip to just give you a sense of a bit of what we heard. Uh, This is Effie Yahalomi, again, the woman whose brother and her 12-year-old nephew um, are currently being held in Gaza, uh, just discussing what it's like to wake up every morning. It's impossible to uh, to understand that this is actually the reality. <sighs> Emotionally, I'm in a roller coaster. Um, sometimes hopeful. Most of the time, I'm trying to think positively. I imagine uh, how they come back. I mean, I plan what what I'm going to tell them, how I'm going to hug them, uh, and that's what keeps me. You know, um, it's 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 like hell. <laughs> Mosh, so incredibly emotional, as she says, kind of like this roller coaster. But it is amazing that she's managing to hold out hope. Yeah, that she's thinking about what she's going to tell them when she sees them again, um, how she's going to hug them. It's the only thing that she says keeps her going. It was interesting in speaking with her. She's like, I can't watch the news. I can't see the headlines. I can't have false hope. I'm living in the reality that I'm living. And then the other gentleman we spoke to, who again, we'll have in a longer podcast, was like, I'm obsessively watching every single headline um, that is happening. So everyone reacting um, to this war and the fact that they have loved ones being held hostage, um, reacting in different ways, all processing it differently. So stay tuned for these interviews, plus an additional interview uh, that uh, we're hopefully doing in the next day to tell you a bit of their stories. In the meantime, Jill, back to the latest uh, from the region. The Israeli military says it has largely consolidated control now of northern Gaza, though fighting there continues. The defense minister saying this week the ground operation will now include both northern Gaza 
and southern Gaza. They're saying uh, they will strike Hamas wherever it is. They did not give a time frame, though, on a potential operation, larger operation in the south. The Israelis on Thursday dropped leaflets in the southern part of Gaza. Down there in the town of Khan Yunus, they asked Palestinians to evacuate that town. Uh, keep in mind, a lot of Palestinians from the north have evacuated to Khan Yunus. So now they're having to figure out where to go next. Uh, most of Gaza's population, about two and a half million people, are now crowded into the southern half of the Gaza Strip. About one and a half million people have had to uh, leave their homes for various uh, refugee camps, UN facilities across the south. The big question now is, if the Israeli uh, operation moves south, that's where they now believe the hostages have been taken and there's still some Hamas fighters down there. It's not clear where these refugees would go. Egypt continues to block any mass transfer of refugees into Egyptian territory on the southern border there. The Israeli military calling for people to move to the safe zone of Mawasi. Uh, that's a town on the coast there in Gaza uh, where they believe humanitarian aid can be delivered. Uh, the head of UN agencies and international charities on Thursday rejected the creation of a safe zone in Mawasi, saying that concentrating civilians in one area was too dangerous. But as the fighting continues and starts to wrap up here in the north, the big question is, what will happen to the south? Where do the people go, given that um, Hamas has moved down there? And it appears that that's where the hostages are as well. Notably now, the Los Angeles Times is the first American paper that has come out to call for a ceasefire. And they were noting exactly what you were just mentioning, that Israel had told Gazans to move south. Now they say Israel is signaling that it will step up its assault in southern Gaza, into which much of the territory's population of more than two million have crowded in response to the warnings to flee the north. They will not be permitted to enter Egypt on Gaza's southwestern border, and they cannot enter Israel. They are trapped. Uh, so the LA Times, again, just pointing to just this humanitarian crisis and all of the lives lost as a call for ceasefire. Yeah, though at the same time, the American government standing by Israel here saying now is not the time for ceasefire. Ceasefire will benefit Hamas. And so the war continues until they're able to do uh, the damage they need to do to the Hamas terror group. All right. And also a quick follow up to a story we mentioned last week. The Ventura County Sheriff's Office has made an arrest in the death of 69 year old Paul Kessler, a Jewish man who died after an altercation with a pro-Palestinian demonstrator in California. 50 year old Loe Abdel Fattah Al-Naji of Moore Park was arrested Thursday morning on a charge of involuntary manslaughter. He is being held on a million dollars bail. Authorities say Kessler died from a severe head injury after an altercation with Al-Nalji during dueling protests. After the incident, the Jewish Federation of L.A. said that Al-Nalji had struck Kessler in the head with a megaphone. Al-Nalji, by the way, is a computer science professor at the community college Moore Park College. Investigators are continuing to ask that anyone with video of the incident reach out to them. Yeah, so it appears here with the charges of involuntary manslaughter that uh, Al-Naji didn't intend to kill Kessler, but in striking him, obviously that led Kessler to fall to the ground, injure his head, and then die of those injuries, hence the involuntary manslaughter charge. All right, file this under a story that uh, we never thought that we would be reporting Two decades after the attacks on September 11th, in which nearly 3,000 Americans were killed, a whole bunch of young Americans say that Osama bin Laden's rationale for those attacks was right. It is a trend that started on, you guessed it, TikTok. 
after the attacks, Osama bin Laden, the al-Qaeda leader behind September 11th, laid out his attempted justification for the terror attack in what he called his, quote, letter to America. As a reminder, on September 11th, Islamic fundamentalists hijacked commercial airplanes and flew them into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and then passengers brought one of the other planes down in a field in Pennsylvania. So fast forward to this week, TikTokers found a translated copy of bin Laden's letter published by The Guardian back in 2002. And so there is now this whole new generation of people, many of whom are currently debating the U.S. role in the Israel-Hamas war and learning about that as well through influencers on TikTok who are now weighing in on bin Laden's letter. Some are saying that they are having a, quote, existential crisis and will never see geopolitics the same way. Some outright saying that they agree with bin Laden's justification for the attacks. And if you think that this is just a fringe group of people on TikTok, as the app is currently claiming, many of these posts have millions of views TikTok saying, quote, content promoting this letter clearly violates our rules on supporting any form of terrorism. We are proactively and aggressively removing this content and investigating how it got onto our platform. Mosh, I read the letter. You read the letter. We broke it down on the Instagram account. So let's, I guess, unfortunately, go through what is in it. Well, I... I feel like our Mo News podcast audience doesn't necessarily need an explanation of why Bin Laden shouldn't be uh, given too much sympathy. Um, and we should explain, by the way, this one letter that this TikToker found, these other TikTokers found, Bin Laden put out hundreds of videos and letters that we both covered in our various journalism jobs after 9-11, explaining why he was doing what he was doing. You know, these effectively rants with a whole variety of things mentioned. It does not appear like these TikTokers actually read the whole letter they claim to have read because this is what it included, among other things. Bin Laden attacks America because he disagrees with U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, support for Israel, and allowing, as he says, the Jews to control the world, the media, and the banking system. He justifies the killing of civilians, referencing that America is sponsoring violence against Muslims in Palestine, Somalia, Chechnya, Kashmir, Lebanon, economic sanctions in Iraq. Now, again, these are uh, stances of American foreign policy. You can certainly take issue with it. People have during that time and in the years since. But let's continue uh, as to what bin Laden says here. He calls out U.S. hypocrisy for allowing Israel to occupy the Palestinian territories. Clearly, that's what caught the attention of many of these TikTokers who are like, ooh, he mentions Palestine. We're into this. So they pick that part up. Fine. But for them to say they read the whole letter, clearly they did not. Because there's rampant anti-Semitism, the entire thing, the Jews controlling the banking system, international puppet masters of the UK, the US controlling everything. Uh, by the way, we should mention, Bin Laden mentions Palestine a lot in many of his videos and letters. He never did anything for Palestine. He just liked to use them as a uh, rhetorical advice. He then goes on to justify 9-11 over and over again, saying that basically America deserves it for its foreign policy. And then we get to the next page, which is his call for what needs to be done to end his war. Number one, everyone in the world needs to convert to Islam immediately. No Christianity, no Judaism, no Hinduism, and none of that. Second thing, America, reject the separation of church and state. You must convert to Islam. You must reject immoralities, fornication, homosexuality, drinking, gambling. And so there's all of that. 
Uh, and then trading and banking with interest, what he calls usury, which is against the Quran. So let's kill most of the capitalist system. Uh, he then continues on the premarital sex thing, the drinking thing, the drugs thing, the gambling thing, the banking thing, etc. So I don't feel like people got to that part. You know, keep in mind of bin Laden's views, India doesn't deserve to be a Hindu country. There should be no Jews, nobody of any faith. Also, women's rights, what a crock that, you know, the U.S. has this sense of equality. There are roles. Um, that's all in this letter. So it does not appear again, like the TikTokers, they might have glommed on to the Palestine stuff without reading the rest of it. And a lot of people noted uh, that the TikTok videos all are the same. That's a thing on TikTok. You have something called the hook at the top of the video being like, stop what you're doing, guys, <laughs> and read this letter. And so that tends to get more views. So everyone's like, were they reading from a script? I'm like, no, it's just that if one video is trending, people tend to mimic it. And Moshe, TikTok is quick to say, look, this letter also spreading on other social media platforms. It is notable, though, that it took off on TikTok. I often quote Scott Galloway on the podcast here, our friend of the pod who doesn't know he is a friend of the pod. Uh, but this is something that he has been predicting for months, not specifically Bin Laden's letter. I don't think anybody could have predicted that. Um, but he had been saying that the biggest threat from TikTok is that you've got the Chinese government in a position where they could weaponize the platform, putting a gentle thumb on the algorithm, for example, to shape the minds with content critical of America, capitalism, or anyone who's really detracting from China. Yeah, I mean, this is what critics will say happens when a foreign adversary controls a highly influential social media platform, especially among youth in your country, right? It, you know, during the Cold War, would we have allowed the Soviet Union to control you know, a major media outlet that got to the youth of America. So again, there's no specific evidence here of what China is up to, but still notable that this is something that leads a certain portion of the American population to be critical of America, reinforcing, you know, the Chinese goals here. But I think what we have is a few different things happening. One, and this is a, a note I got from one of our Mo News followers. This is the generation, Gen Z, that uh, is trying to get all the facts about things. They want to feel like they're doing the research. They don't feel like they've gotten the whole picture. They want to make their own conclusions. They want a deeper understanding of historical events and how we got to where we got now. So effectively, you see them, generally speaking, rebelling against previous narratives, whether it's um, the founding of America, you know, uh, other foundational things of this country. And certainly, you know, you could look back on our education and say that, you know, certain things are sort of glossed over, right? Things that are negative about this country are glossed over. So I think this reinforces their kind of like, well, we were told one thing, and it turns out to be something else. So they're disavowing the narrative. They want to get at what the truth is here. The issue for them is that in this case, like, certainly you can look back on American foreign policy and say there have been many, many faults, right? In fact, some of the criticism that Bedalan has and, you know, I'm not going to say they agree on many things, but his criticism of, like, for example, our policy in Iraq. Do you know who else is criticizing that? Donald Trump. Do you know who else who's criticizing that? Bernie Sanders. So this is a rare case where Bernie Sanders, Osama bin Laden, and Donald Trump agree on something. My point is this, you know, for a generation Gen Z that's so hyper-focused on apparent hypocrisy, opposing the oppressor, you know, uh, they're losing sight of the forest for the trees here. Uh, and again, seeing a point in a bin Laden letter, clearly that's going viral and losing sight of the larger context in their pursuit of the truth, they're missing the larger truth. Look, 9-11, not so long ago, we were both around. It's seared into my memory. Well, we're old, Jill. We're old. 
But we're not talking about something that happened 100 years ago, which isn't right. even that long ago. This is something that that literally happened 22 years ago. I know for me personally, I've mentioned it on this podcast, my husband's best friend in the world was killed in one of the towers. My two uncles spent 24-hour shifts on the pile looking for survivors. This is personal. There is just part of me that last night was watching just the glibness of some of these people who were reading this letter and now thinking they've got it all figured out that just wanted to turn around and say, like, show some respect. I mean, come on. 3,000 of your fellow countrymen were killed. They don't know that. They feel like, you know, everything is a conspiracy and everything's been sugarcoated. And the real truth is that, you know, America sucks. And they've got a steady diet of that, right? That, you know, ultimately, that's something that for some of them is like part of their basic creed is part of like their basic philosophy. And so this reinforces their larger philosophy. And by the way, we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Many of them are just coming fresh off of justifying the Hamas attack, murdering civilians, right, as part of a larger cause. And so as far as they're concerned, there's no such thing as terrorism. Terrorism is a bad word. You can't call them a terrorist. That's really mean to them. They have a cause and they're fighting Western aggression and Western oppression. And, you know, uh, I might disagree with their tactics, but I understand why they did what they did. And that rationalizing of terrorism is, is a concerning trend, right? All as part of being kind of a larger, a larger wokeness, right? A larger like, well, we need to understand the underlying reasons. And sometimes murder is murder, folks. There's no way to justify it. That's sort of where we stand. And the larger question, as we brought up, is what is the role of TikTok? Is it being manipulated or is that just the algorithm right now? in terms of the way things are going viral. And, you know, that remains to be seen. And there's a certain level of transparency we just we just don't have into that app. All right, we have a lot more news to get to in today's speed read. But first, want to thank our sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. If you're a longtime listener, you know that I've been drinking AG1 for about a year now. When I started drinking AG1, could feel a real difference in energy, especially now I'm a new dad. I can use all the help I can get. It's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that supports your body's universal needs, gut optimization, stress management, immune support. AG1 is just a a scoop of powder in water in the morning, and you go on with your day knowing you've got more than 70 important ingredients, and you're ready to go. I've heard from a number of you who have started taking AG1 after listening to this podcast you know, liking the feeling that you have your nutrition, your nutrients covered for the day. And of course, AG1 has a special deal for the Monews community. Right now, if you head over to drinkag1.com slash Monews, you can sign up for AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Again, that is drinkag1.com slash Monews to really take ownership of your health. I'm now for the speed read from the New York Times. Sean Diddy Combs, the producer and music mogul, sued in federal court on Thursday by Cassie, an R&B singer once signed to his label. She accused Combs of rape and of repeated physical abuse over about a decade. A warning now, uh, some of what she describes is extremely graphic. So if you're listening with kids, you might want to skip the next minute or so. In the suit, which was filed in federal district court in Manhattan, Cassie, whose real name is Cassandra Ventura, and who had long been Combs' romantic partner, says that not long after she met him in 2005, when she was 19, he began a pattern of control and abuse that included plying her with drugs, beating her, 
and forcing her to have sex with a succession of male prostitutes while he filmed the encounters. According to the suit in 2018, near the end of their relationship, Combs forced his way into her home and raped her. Miss Ventura also saying in a statement, quote, after years in silence and darkness, I am finally ready to tell my story and to speak up on behalf of myself and for the benefit of other women who face violence and abuse in their relationships. Yeah, in response here, a lawyer for Diddy Combs, Puff Daddy, Sean Combs, says he vehemently denies these offensive and outrageous allegations. For the past six months, Mr. Combs has been subjected to Ms. Ventura's persistent demand of $30 million under the threat of writing a damaging book about their relationship which was unequivocally rejected as blatant blackmail. Despite withdrawing her initial threat, she has now resorted to filing a lawsuit riddled with what they call are baseless and outrageous lies, aiming to tarnish his reputation and seeking a payday. A lawyer for Cassie, Cassandra Ventura, uh, said the parties have spoken before the suit was filed, and they claim that Combs actually offered Ventura eight figures, tens of millions of dollars to silence her and prevent the filing of this lawsuit. She rejected his efforts. Jill, some remarkable stuff in this suit. It depicts him as a very violent person beyond the allegations of assault here. He says he asked her to carry his gun in her purse. Uh, It also talks in the suit, Jill, we talked about this in the Instagram feed, that he was responsible for blowing up the car of a rival suitor. Somebody, another rapper, had a crush on her. By the way, we now know who that is, Kid Cudi. He actually tells the New York Times, yep, that happened. My car was blown up (laughs) back in 2012. So apparently... (laughs) Apparently, like he's got, you know, there's the terrible, horrific allegations as far as assault's concerned. He's blowing up cars. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like a freaking gangster here. Kid Cudi again saying, it's true. My car was blown up in my driveway when I had a crush on Cassie. I, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to be laughing. I'm sorry. Jill, I'll say it really cut into his pursuit of happiness if you know the song. Want to mention Ventura's case, like other recent sexual assault lawsuits being brought under the Adult Survivors Act. That is a New York law that lets people who say that they were the victims of sexual abuse file civil suits after the statute of limitations has expired. The one-year window to bring cases under this law ends next week. So Ventura saying with the expiration of New York's Adult Survivors Act fast approaching, it became clear that this was an opportunity to speak up about the trauma that she says that she has experienced and will be recovering from for the rest of her life. From NBC News, a federal jury on Thursday convicted the man who attacked Paul Pelosi, the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, with a hammer during a break in last year at the couple's San Francisco home. David Zapape looked down and showed no emotion as the panel found him guilty of attempted kidnapping of a federal official and assault on the immediate family member of a federal official. The unanimous verdicts were reached by the panel of 12 jurors that deliberated for eight hours. So DePape, who's 43, by the way, faces up to 50 years in prison when they do the sentencing. Uh, He's still on the hook for state charges as well related to this invasion of the Pelosi home and then his assault of Paul Pelosi, who, by the way, was 83 years old at the time. He sustained a fractured skull in the hammer attack. Now, in this case, DePape never contested that he didn't break into the house. He said he totally did. But the defense here tried to narrow the argument, saying he never intended to kidnap anybody. They tried to get into specifics here, semantics, that he was merely there trying to get to another person, Nancy Pelosi. 
Now, you got a sense here from DePape and how he got into all this is basically QAnon uh, conspiracy theories uh, that he was rattling off. They actually put him on the stand uh, to testify on his own behalf. Uh, he said his plan was to not do anything to Paul Pelosi, that that was merely an accident and he feels really bad about assaulting him with a hammer. His true plan was to get to Nancy Pelosi, have her admit her corruption. That would then get him to Joe Biden. Uh, he also apparently wanted to get to Hunter Biden, Adam Schiff, the former Attorney General Bill Barr, Tom Hanks, Bernie Sanders, and the California governor. That was his plan. Um, again, he never planned to do any of this to Paul Pelosi. It, not, it does not appear like that argument worked out uh, very well, uh, as the jury found him guilty, and he faces 50 years in prison. But again, the scary thing here is, you know, we tend to laugh off some of these conspiracy theories, but to people who clearly are not all there, they believe this stuff, and it led this guy to show up at the Pelosi house with a hammer. And get in. Which is another question about Capitol Police and the security that they had. From Newsday, my hometown paper, the House Ethics Committee on Thursday saying that it found substantial evidence that Congressman George Santos engaged in unlawful conduct and knowingly deceived campaign donors for his own personal financial profit. Shortly after that panel's report was released, Santos said that he would not be seeking re-election to a second term. He blasted the committee's report as a politicized smear. The bipartisan committee in a 55-page report said it planned to immediately refer its findings to the Justice Department. The report saying that Santos's conduct warrants public condemnation, is beneath the dignity of the office, and has brought severe discredit upon the House. The report accuses Santos of blatantly stealing campaign funds to pay for personal expenses, such as $1,500 in Botox treatments, $6,000 in items from high-end fashion brand Ferragamo, and $800 at a casino. <laughs> not, not what you typically donate campaign funds for. By the way, they didn't call it uh, Botox. They called it aesthetic treatment um, on the forms. The committee here saying he deceived donors into providing what they thought were contributions to his campaign, but were in fact payments for his personal benefit. He's already facing 23 federal charges uh, that are tied to his 2022 campaign. Uh, he pleaded not guilty to them. He's going to face trial for them next year. Although the report details unlawful conduct, the report doesn't actually talk about disciplinary recommendations, including expulsion. They said that would have taken a few more months here. But at the same time, the Ethics Committee chairman says, his name is Michael Guest, he plans to file an expulsion measure against Santos as soon as today. By the way, Guest is a Republican from Mississippi. There's already been a couple attempts to expel him. Now with this Ethics Committee report, that might put people over the edge here. Speaker Mike Johnson put out a statement on Thursday saying he's looking for feedback from his caucus on exactly how to proceed with Mr. Santos. Santos, of course, hoping that by saying he's not going to run uh, next year, that they'll let him stay until his term is done a year from January. I was listening, actually, to an interview, Mosh, with the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. She just says he's got to go immediately, which would basically prompt her to have to call for a special election. Um, she could do that within about 10 days. And then there could be an election within about, I think it was 70 days, which means that in a sense, there could be two elections within in a year. Yeah. Jill, you'll get to vote for Congress twice in the next year. Oh, like, in good. Good, good, good. 
from CNBC. Amazon next year will allow auto dealers to sell cars through its site, starting with South Korean automaker Hyundai. The company has slowly muscled its way into the car buying business over the years, launching digital showrooms on its site for shoppers to research and compare vehicles but not to purchase them directly through Amazon. Consumers can also buy car products like replacement parts through its site. Starting next year, Amazon will let shoppers purchase a new car online and then pick it up or have it delivered by their local dealership. Consumers will be able to search for available vehicles in their area, make a selection, then check out on Amazon using their preferred payment and financing method. One of the more expensive purchases you might ever make on Amazon. <laughs> I'm thinking of you with that story about how, didn't you say you accidentally ordered like 400 boxes? Way too many Pop-Tarts. Pop-Tarts. Yeah. Whoops, a car. Definitely be sober <laughs> if you're uh, playing on Amazon and you have a uh, car in your basket. The company is saying that the new feature will create another way for dealers to offer convenience to their customers. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy saying the partnership with Hyundai will change the ease with which customers can buy vehicles online. As part of the deal, Hyundai will also include Amazon's Alexa voice assistant in its cars starting in 2025. Yeah, so what's interesting here is shoppers will be able to buy cars on Amazon, but the dealer will still be the end seller. Dealers still manage this. Traditional automakers like Hyundai have complex relationships with dealers that are backed in many states by laws that make it difficult or illegal to bypass franchise dealers. Dealers have a very strong lobby, Jill, and they've maintained this stranglehold on the car business for a long time. One company that has broken that is Tesla. They don't go through dealerships, right? You buy directly through Tesla. So some of the EV market uh, have been trying to break through on the uh, dealer front. But for now, even if you're buying a car on Amazon, it appears you're going to still be doing it through a dealership. From Axios, there has been a staggering decline in the amount of walking Americans are doing. The number of annual average daily walking trips dropped 36% in the U.S. between 2019 and 2022, according to some new data from Streetlight. The report says that in every metro and state that Streetlight analyzed, walking trips declined over their three-year period by at least 20%. Streetlight measures travel behavior based on anonymous data from mobile phones, vehicle GPS systems, and more. For the analysis, one walking trip is any trip taken by foot that is more than about 820 feet from start to finish. New York City, no surprise, ranking highest among the top 50 U.S. metro areas uh, by annual average daily walking trips per capita. Just behind New York, Orlando, Vegas, and San Diego, among the top walking cities. At the end of the list, and tied for last place, Boise, Idaho, Ogden, Utah, and Portland, Oregon. Right now, going against the trend, uh, meaning people are walking more, L.A., San Diego, and Modesto, all in California. That's where they saw an increase in daily walking trips. Jill, notable that LA is on the list. Uh, in LA, uh, as a New Yorker, I often go there and you know ask if I can walk somewhere, and people are like you, uh, you could. We just we don't walk in this city. <laughs> um, we can drive you there. Uh, as far as uh, additional numbers here, walking and biking accounted for just ten percent of overall trips in 2022. That is down from fourteen percent in 2019. And so they're trying to get to the bottom of this. Uh, obviously, a lot of this, they point to remote work, that people are walking a lot less because many more people are working from home, um, commuting less. One other part of it could be the downtown story, the urban story. If a city has fewer restaurants, shops, um, et cetera, open, there's less reason for locals and visitors to have a walkabout, as they say. Though at the same time, we'll tell you, and we've told you this on the pod before, 
uh, you know, walking important part of uh, the eight ways you can live longer, I think, Jill, in our uh, pod last week. So get out there and start walking again. Good for your mental health also. I think there's a lot of people, Jill, who listen to this podcast on their daily morning walk. So hello to all of you. All right, Mosh, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating. Uh, kick it off. What are you watching? So over the summer, we got to Barbie, but I never got to see Oppenheimer, which probably shocks people because it's a historical movie, etc. I'm into the subject matter. I never got to it. Well, guess what? On Tuesday, it begins streaming on Apple, Amazon, and a variety of platforms. So I'm looking forward to the three-hour-plus movie from the comfort of my couch. Jill, what are you watching? Season four of For All Mankind out on Apple TV Plus, one of my favorite shows, actually. So I'm looking forward to it. And we should note the last season of The Crown also out this weekend. Um, if you watch that drama, it's taking you from Queen Elizabeth when she was just a mere youngin. And now uh, the final years are all about Diana and Charles. And it'll take you through Diana's death in 98 in this season. So looking forward to the conclusion of the crown and it's netflix which means they drop all the episodes together so you can just binge them this weekend if you want to jill what are you reading the newest book club pick it ends with us by colleen hoover i still have to purchase it a quick search on amazon describes it as a story of unshakable love and finding the strength to make the right choice in the hardest situation and what about you mosh Jill, another uplifting read. Tyranny of the Minority, <laughs> Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. Uh, just interviewed Stephen Levitsky. He's one of the authors. He's a professor at Harvard uh, who studied this. He studied failed um, Latin American democracies and talks about some of the uh, perils. And so I interviewed him about this book, and uh, we'll be having that over on the Premium Pod in the coming weeks. All right, Jill, my favorite part. What are you reading this weekend? Mosh, we have been doing a lot of mini croissants, mostly from Whole Foods. We'll buy a big carton of them. And they're dangerous because they're small and packed with butter and they're just so delicious. Uh, so everybody in the house is into them, including the baby. I want to be like, this isn't real bread. Don't get used to this. This isn't what all bread tastes it's like. It's just butter. It's just butter and dough. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Um, Al has a uh, cookbook called The First 40 Days Postpartum, and she made the peanut butter and honey rice crispy treats from that cookbook uh, from the first 40 days, and they are delicious and addictive, and we've been <laughs> crushing them in the past day. All right, everybody. We hope that uh, you enjoy your weekend, whatever you are watching, reading, and eating. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. See you guys on Monday. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.